Hello and welcome to Beyond the Iron Sea. 30 minutes you'll never get back, along with 5 or 6 you're going to treasure forever. On today's episode, we'll look back on a few things that have happened since we were last here. We'll be talking about uh, Keane's new record, Cause and Effect, which you may have heard of, and how it fits into the uh, Keane canon, so to speak. We'll dive deep on the key tracks that make up the record with my ear for music and Andrew's ability to talk for half an hour about the tiniest minutiae. And of course, we'll also have some thoughts on what the future might hold for those three guys from Sussex, plus the other one. The surprises will keep on coming on today's Beyond the Iron Sea. Beyond the Iron Sea. So, as many of you will be aware, Keane's fifth album, Cause and Effect, came out on September the 20th this year. It did, and... Um I don't know about you, Chris, but I, I wasn't exactly anticipating uh, a new album this year or any time soon. Um, first, some background. I mean, it, it appears as though the, the band got back together around uh, last summer, um, started recording around the time of the, the Battle gig, um, which um, they did for charity at Battle Abbey, uh, when was that, last, last August? 2018, yeah. Um, so it looks like the, the recording session started sort of... St- just before that and had gone through all the way through until the uh, the end of the year and um, it genuinely seems like there was no there was no sort of grand plan here I mean in the past we've known that the band have been sort of plotting two three years ahead they sure. know who, who they want to work with and almost where they want to record right yeah I think uh, on uh, one of the recent videos that Keen put out the uh, on the YouTube channel Jesse mentioned that before it was a bit more career orientated and, and in this instance actually it there wasn't uh it wasn't part of a big master plan it was just something that happened uh when the songs came together yeah um and i think um just going back to that that battle gig um i actually uh, ran into richard um by chance um, mm-hmm. just before the show and um i i joked to him that um this was going to lead to a 300 day world tour starting this year and he was uh, pretty unequivocal in saying that that wasn't going to be happening. So he he does have a. <laughs> first of all, he has a great uh, a great poker face. He didn't say anything about uh, recording a new album, but um, also I don't think that there is any uh, any grand plan. It's simply can we go and do this? And if they can, then things can get scheduled. But um, that's basically where we are now. The the record, as you said, came out um, September twentieth. Number one in many countries, but unfortunately not here in the UK. Yeah, I think Liam Gallagher uh, pipped into the post, which is kind of ironic given some of the rifts over the years with uh, between Oasis and uh, and King. Well, they never forget that the uh, the day that Oasis broke up, and they well the day before Oasis broke up, who was it who was playing Oasis songs to uh, a big crowd of Oasis fans? So uh, that's uh, that's cause and effect number two in the chart since first week in the UK. Um, qualified success, I'd say worldwide. Um, as the band go out and tour uh, the rest of the world, I'm sure we'll, we'll see it sell and, and do pretty well. Um, so as I said, the, um, they've been out and toured the UK. Uh, did you manage to go out and see the tour? Yeah, I saw the uh, the Brighton date um, last Saturday. Nice. Um, I, I managed to come over, find find some time in my schedule to, to beat the Birmingham show. Um, really, really successful tour. Uh, sold out um, uh, pretty much all of the dates, just a handful of production tickets here and there. Uh, and so next it'll be uh, Latin America uh, coming up in the autumn. Uh, some dates in Europe in January and February. And then after that it'll be over to America. It'll be their, one of their biggest US tours to date, certainly in terms of number of dates, if not the size of the venues. I'll see you there. <laughs> I'm fairly sure you won't. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, uh, that, that's basically the news as it stands uh, for now. Um, we're not going to dwell too much on it because we're, we're sure that you're all up with what's been going on uh, with the band. 
but I bet you're all dying to know a little bit more about what we think about the record. Let's get to it. So as they say, a week is a long time in politics, and we've had uh, 300-odd weeks since, uh, since the last Keen record. That's right, yeah. With uh, seven years since the release of Strangeland, it's, uh, quite a lot has changed in the music industry, I think. And I think when we look at, when we look at cause and effect or you know, sort of how, the, how the band are releasing it these days, that so much has changed in terms of there being um, much less of a market for actually selling people albums, which is what Keen have, have specialised in. Yeah, with the rise of streaming, it's very much the case that people will be streaming their favourite songs, putting them on playlists and curating in, in, in that sort mm-hmm. of way rather than necessarily buying an album, putting a candle on and listening to it in a darkened room for an hour or two. Exactly. The, um, one of the things that I've, I've seen the, the band talking about during this promotional phase has been to go and look at the uh, statistics on Spotify of their most streamed songs. Mm. And I think like, the, the Afrojack remix of Sovereign Light Cafe has, uh, has more plays than um, uh, Can't Stop Now. For example, which is which is crazy when you think yeah. about it, um, considering that's uh, that's off a, a, an album that has sold you know multi multiple millions worldwide. So, um, looking at looking at where they're sort of coming from now, it's more important than ever for them to have songs that you can uh, enjoy in a live setting that um, perhaps you might want to put on a playlist of your favourites. And mm-hmm. looking at the album in that context, I think is is quite interesting. It is. Uh, I think at the, at the same time, it's it's interesting that the album's come out of uh, with such a strong theme, and it really has a very strong concept, which kind of lends itself more to being a bit of an old school album in, in that way. So, it's uh, kind of an interesting challenge, isn't it? Yeah, the the classic sort of storytelling songwriter versus the uh, quick fix pop hit kind of songwriter with, with eight fillers in. Yeah, it's, it, exactly. Not that Keith yeah. have ever done that, but. Uh, <laughs> It's, it, it's been more difficult than ever, I think, to be able to put together a successful album. And I think just just from that perspective, I think we should be, you know, sort of grateful that we, we have the opportunity to, to have this record in front of us. And mm. um, first of all, we should say that the, um, the, the album started with uh, the hiring of uh, David Coston uh, to produce. Um, over the last few records, um, we've seen um, Keen generally move away from the work they did with Andy Green. Andy Green, yes, uh, at, uh, back in the, the heliocentric days, towards more sort of self-produced work, Tim working more from uh, Seafog and um, sort of, uh, I think they did some work with Dave Fridman and, you know, basically taking sort of a... a Dan Gretsch, I think, produced Strangeland, yeah. Exactly, sort of a, a mix and match approach, mm. um, but actually working uh, end-to-end, I think, with one producer. Um, so... Although it's a, it's a step forward uh, in a way with David Coston, it's not the first time they've worked with him, is it? No, the first time was on an album, I think for War Child uh, compilation, uh, where they did uh, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, uh, the a, Elton John cover. Yeah, A Day in the Life. That was it, yeah. Um, I mean, it's, so it's both, it's both a forward step. I think that I mean some of his work with uh, Everything Everything and uh, Back for Lashes. I think it's, it's very expansive. I think it's, it's um, also more inventive than um, what you consider to be Keen's comfort zone. Mm. Having said that, I also think it's, it, it, my first reaction to it was that it's a little bit of a backward step because I think um, that Elton John cover is probably the most boring thing that Keen have ever recorded. It's, really? I, I remember I, the, the enemy described it as milky, which I think is uh, pretty much nailing it for me. 
so for me, the, the David Coston work I'm sort of familiar with is uh, not wanting to sound too pretentious, but kind of the early stuff with uh, Ben Christophers, um, who is sort of a, an artist that sort of I saw as a support act uh, a few times back in uh, 2003, 2004. And the sounds that I kind of associate with David Coston is very much that small room, very dark, very uh, electronic, very introspective. So kind of uh, that combination is not something we've seen a lot of with Keane. I think some of um, uh, some of his work, I mean if I go back to, to Everything Everything specifically, like uh, some of the inventiveness of the the synth work and um, putting down samples and reversing them, um, uh, circuit bending on um, you know cheap synths and keyboards mm. um, there's a, a sound on sound article where I think one of the bits uh, in there is him talking about a speaker's bell which he's uh, which he's played with so that you can sort of like warp the warp the sounds out of it it's not Keane's comfort zone at all no it's more kind of the sound engineering rather than uh, sort of pure songwriting focus and it's kind of interesting um, I was uh, looking back at some of uh, Tom's commentary regarding Strangeland uh, where he was saying that was intended very much to be a sort of songwriting led album uh, and he sort of uh, put down Perfect Symmetry as being a bit self-indulgent so it's kind of interesting to see that uh, that inventiveness which was on Perfect Symmetry uh, coming around again which uh, is something I, I really really love actually and, and there's some some really really interesting um, sort of textures and sounds on, on the new album. I think I think you can probably um, connect up that inventiveness with the uh, the comments from Jesse about the, the, the direction and the career driven and pressure to make another record that when you have to just go in and make something there's there's very little incentive for you to go out and really like push yourself if you do feel like we're we're fulfilling an obligation why go in and start messing around with you know stylophones and yeah uh, you know and reversing some artistic uh, liberty to do uh, to sort of follow your heart really rather than follow the money exactly you know what, let's go in let's record it as a band uh, a couple of overdubs bang that one's in the in the tank let's all go to the pub and not that I would ever suggest that that's been an approach of, of the bands in the past but I th- there, there does seem like there's a bit of a return to craft right yeah definitely so one of the one of the things I think you picked out um, in your sort of first listen through when we were comparing some notes is um, the sort of the the modern pop focus of uh, at least the first couple of singles uh, in trying to sort of break free of the, the, the keen mould and try and align a little bit more with the kind of thing you hear on the radio these days. Um, and I think you've got a couple of examples for us to listen to here. Yeah, so one of the things I heard in uh, Love Too Much is that uh, Tresio rhythm, which is that kind of da-da-da-da-da-da rhythm, which is kind of all over modern pop songs. So um, uh, Ed Sheeran, big, uh, big user of this particular rhythm. So you, you picked up one example here. And of course, everyone's uh, everyone's favourite uh, Spanish banger, Despacito, has the same rhythm. Here it is. Despacito, quiero respirar tu cuello despacito. Deja que te diga cosas al oído para que te acuerdes si no estás conmigo. Despacito, quiero decirte a besos. So obviously, uh, you can see you can see the sort of thing that Tim is uh, Tim and and, uh, and Faultline are sort of like uh, going for here. Um, it's interesting that you picked that out. That it's, I mean, it's not something that's obvious that you think that that 
aligns with those two, but it's um, once you hear it, you can't unhear it, right? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, and uh, I think that's just one example of how this this seven year gap that we've had between Strangeland and Cause and Effect um, has been a challenge for for the band to sort of like adapt to it. And I think if they'd have come back with uh, an obligation to record again, and it was a sort of band in a room recording kind of album. Um, I think it would have been very difficult to see um, how it would have worked. It would have been quite anachronistic. Yeah, it's uh, it's a bit, a bit more natural and a bit more of a labour of love, really, as opposed to uh, commitment number five on the contract or something. Jesse named his art centre Old Jet after his favourite petrol station as a child. Beyond the Right, so, so seven years later, we've got a new old producer. We've got a, a musical landscape that doesn't really favour album recording. And we have a band that's basically had to be put back together from its constituent parts from scratch. A drummer who hasn't drummed in years. A singer who isn't in the band. A songwriter who hasn't really been writing songs. So, overall thoughts then on Cause and Effect, Chris? Yeah, I wasn't sure what... Well, I, I don't know what I was expecting, really. So... My initial thoughts were that I was quite struck by how kind of minimalist and introspective it almost felt, uh, and and kind of it felt very kind of small and closed in. The album that it reminded me most of, actually, in a strange way, was um, Kanye's uh, 808s and Heartbreaks, and which is kind of another album about losing family and expressing that through the medium of dark synths so maybe maybe <laughs> i don't know it was, a, it was a strange parallel to to kind of um fall into but yeah it's this keen yeah. date 808s and heartbreaks yeah that, there's an in, there's an intimacy to it that i think has been perhaps yeah. missing a little bit from the from their work since hopes and fears in a way um yeah the, uh, i don't know if certainly in the way that the vocal sounds I mean, if you think of something like sovereign light cafe that song was written for tom to belt out uh, and this album i would say is kind of an album of on a day like today's in a way that it's got that really kind of synth tinged but classic keen songwriting led uh relationship personal relationship sort of feeling to it yeah actually and um so i mean my I, my first thoughts were going back to thing things like um like untitled one which is super atmospheric um mm. One of the big things for Tim's songwriting has always been when he when he writes songs up on his board, um, is the vibe there. That was the, that was something that um, during the uh, the Strangers documentary for Under um, around the time of Under the Iron Sea, every song there was a cross or a tick. The yeah, vibe checklist. was there. Yeah, which is um, and, um The vibe the vibe is there, but it's a it's a different and uneasy vibe. I think in places as necessitates the the nature of the album. This is actually the first time that. I've not had a copy of the album pre-release date. So, um, Hopes and Fears, I was still at my university radio station, I remember the promo coming. Um, Every one of the albums since, it's been something that we've we've been so privileged that we've been able to share in that earlier. And and also heard a lot of the songs live beforehand as well, whereas there haven't been live gigs until after the album's been released. Exactly, and... I, I did have the, the privilege of going to um, one of the festival shows this summer, so I did get to hear a couple of the songs. Hmm. Um, but th- there is there has been something thrilling, I think, about um, at midnight on, on day of release, um, queuing up the record, playing it on some proper speakers, 
um, admittedly streaming, so some loss of, of music uh, quality there. But actually listening to it all the way through for the first time at the same time as a lot of other people are. Um, and the immediate reaction that I had to it, first of all, is that that first side, um, and for those who are not familiar with the concept of sides, it's back in the day when your albums came on 12 inches and you'd have to turn it over at the halfway mark. Mm. And I, I'm a big believer in sides as a sort of a, an album unit in their own right. I think first side of Rumours, much better than the second side of Rumours, uh, the Fleetwood Mac album. Right. Um, and for me, I think the, the first side of Cause and Effect is possibly the strongest side of any record that they've put together in terms of the quality of writing, in terms of the, the flow of how it's put together. Um, I think the, the quality of the playing, I think the um, vocal from Tom, all of the constituent parts are stronger, I think, than they've ever been before. So my initial reaction to that first half of the record was, you know, wow, this, I mean, this is, they've really like, nailed it this time. Um, Overall, I mean, the second the second side doesn't quite hit the same heights, and, um, but my initial reaction to it was this is I mean this is really fantastic work and so much better than I think we could have expected. Yeah, I mean it's, it's certainly a very kind of front loaded album. You remember that on Hopes and Fears the the track listing in America was slightly different. With uh, this is the last time I think was uh, you know moved right up from side B to side A. Yeah, yeah. Um, this kind of packs a bit of a punch at the start, doesn't it? It does, and. Um, the only question I would have around the sequencing is that I, I feel like the the last couple of tracks, it's it, it, the album sort of dies away for me. I mean, those are two beautiful songs to finish with. I think the um, I Need Your Love is, I mean, it's beautifully performed. I think um, Tom absolutely sings his heart out on it. But it's, it, it feels like a song that could be on his one of his solo records to me. Exactly. I, I um, Not that that makes it a bad thing, but it, to me it doesn't, it doesn't feel like an appropriate I, I didn't get that sense of closure that you really want from a from a you know a, 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 as devastating a record as this is in places mm-hmm. um, so I mean th- that was my, my main sort of takeaway from this was that it feels like a great record but not a really truly satisfying one in terms of it the, the way that it's put together the sequencing it, it's it's not ending on a bed shape or love is the end is it exactly and actually just you mentioned love is the end but isn't that one of the great forgotten keen songs i think so yeah um i mean that hasn't been played live in years it's not going to be up on those you know the spotify top tens but it's i mean it's it's a you know it's a classic great closer um how would you i mean you've you're obviously a big musical guy you're you know the, the guy who, who breaks the songs down and, and, you know, tells us what to look for. Musically, how, how do you feel that this album has come together? Yeah, that's, that's a, quite an interesting question. Um, I mean, obviously the album kicks up, off with um, You're Not Home, which is infused with fault lines, uh, David Costin's um, trademarks, you know, of, of the... Do we, do we still call him Fault Line, or think... is he now Mr. Costin? <laughs> yeah. Maybe that was just a teenage phase, wasn't it? But um, that felt very much kind of producer-led, and then, and, but then you hop straight into the the um, the big keen um, classic pop songs, really. So within the songs, I think there are definitely sort of little album tropes. You know, there's a few songs that have li- these little stops in them um, mm. where everything, you know, there's this silence, and that that really makes the the rest of the song explode. So we have that in "You're Not Home." We have a moment in Put the Radio On where it's just where you've got the stop and then it sort of dazzles yeah. in the beginning Actually, on the intro of Stupid Things as well so 
That's true. Um, I was just going to pick up on put, put the radio on. Um, if you look at them, um, there's some videos online of where they, they debuted that um, through some of the, the sort of the intimate gigs through the summer in Europe, where they were really emphasising that stop. But because people weren't familiar with the song, a lot of people assumed that the song was over. So um, they've sort of shortened that stop down so that when they're now playing it on the tour, it sort of flows a little bit more. But I think that, that stop is actually musically really important in terms of the way that it sort of pops that second half of the song. I think specifically on, on Put The Radio On, I feel like it's a it's thematically a sort of a successor of Atlantic, which was two songs cut and shut together by Tim because yeah. they were running out of time to do a B-side and then ended up getting held back for, for Under The IT. So um, it's... Uh, that. As you said, there are there are certain things which pop up from song to song, and um, one of the things that stood out for me was the the um, the the richness of the percussion, the the electronic drum pads, um, the the fact that I mean, really, Richard is pushing himself further than he's ever pushed himself before here. Absolutely, I ha- I had exactly the same thoughts here, and yeah, not to sound sort of patronising or anything, but I think on hopes and fears, uh, I remember at the time someone pointed out that I think. Th- Four, four out of the 12 songs had exactly the same sort of drum pattern yeah. whereas here the, there are not just different drum grooves but different drum sounds and you know on the you know in, the, in on the live gigs he's taking out sort of drum pads and things as well which opens up a whole new world of, of doing things a different way I mean we, we mentioned on title one a little earlier it's not inconceivable they could play give that its live debut at some point in future if, if the tech's now there and they've got four band members it's, it's conceivable yeah, Tim it's singing true. live <laughs> yeah let's it's get it started here <laughs> on title one live. Um, <laughs> no I mean with, with Richard the if you look at the progression of the rest of the band I think um, Tom Tom was always a great singer um, someone who perhaps was so naturally gifted he didn't know how to be a professional with it uh, and that's obviously a whole other um, uh, sort of thing to get into um, with Tim he's always been uh, you know someone who loves the synths he wants to do five things at once left hand playing one synth on top right hand on the CP70 um, he's always loved doing that and yeah you, you take the, the 2004 version of Richard who was a basically a, a bit of a nodding dog with his head going up and right. down behind the kit very simple lines there was no mic he wasn't doing BVs um, he had the click track so he had something to keep him in time um, he was a um, much more basic drummer than he is today I think for me that felt like he was trying to serve the songs um, being a rock drummer and I think now perhaps he's still serving the songs but realising that doesn't mean just keeping time in the background yeah. he can add something to it and you know, maybe I don't know how much the David Coston work has brought that out, or whether it's just having a break and, and being able to think about kind of what drums mean, and coming back to it with a fresh approach, having maybe not played quite so much uh, yeah. over the past few years, has has meant that you know that there's been a really fresh take. But yeah, that is for me a really really marked difference between this record and and any others that we've seen before. I mean, the the, the notes I've, I've reading from my notes here I basically said that he's he's now effectively the the glue behind the band, which. Um, when you sort of review how the dynamic of the band has changed, like, I really feel like Richard is is at the heart of it now. Um, that the way that he has driven this 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 record forwards, I think the the complexity, of the rhythm, I think the um, uh, the backing vocals. His his vocals now are exceptionally good for uh, for someone who 
was not really, you know, doing vocals either live or on record until, you know, well into the band's, you know, the band had sold 10 million records before he committed a, a vocal line to uh, to tape. So um, I think what might be a bit, a bit of fun here, I think if you, you um, can call up some of the, the previous vocals, I think we've got the, the end of ish indention here where you can just hear some of Richard's vocals. See how the world goes round You've got to help yourself See how the world goes round And you'll help someone else that's, Yeah, you can just hear that, that end bit there. That's, that's obviously very identifiably Richard. Um, compare and contrast that with um, uh, some, something from, from um, Cause and Effect. Um, where you can really hear him coming through richly. It's not that I don't love you. Just one more stupid thing that I have. In the lies and the second so I think that, that's a great example of how the, the evolution of the band and specifically how much, how important Richard is now to the, the, the band as a whole. How that's really driven this particular record forwards. Not to mention the excellent work on Twitter. Well, of course. Um, lyrically, I think, uh, just to sort of, you know, uh, take a, a little bit more of a, uh, you know, a different look at the record. Lyrically, there's been nothing like this yet. And we'll, we'll go into this a little bit more in, I think, uh, the next couple of sections of the of the show. But um, it's fascinating to see how um, raw uh, Tim has gone. And, w- and where do you see Jesse fitting in on this record? It's interesting because, I mean, you usually see rhythm sections as being, uh, you know, a unit. Um, I don't really, I don't see the energy that Jesse has brought to the band so much mm. in that he is, you know, the, the songs don't require the strutting bass player that he has been. They do require, I think, some of his, his um, more nuanced uh, instrumental work. Um, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think the, one of the reasons Jesse made such an impact on Perfect Symmetry is that he was um, thinking a lot, very much outside the box. And when there wasn't a producer, he was effectively, I feel, and I may be completely wrong, but I feel like he perhaps had a uh, lended an element of the uh, production to Perfect Symmetry. Whereas this obviously had fault line and was, you know, was, um, I wonder what the dynamic in the studio was like um, there with, with Jesse around. I know he mentioned in a recent interview that he was actually initially quite happy not to uh, not to do any more keen work at all. So, but uh, the song convinced him otherwise. Yeah, um, I don't think. I mean, we we obviously we're not, we're not insiders as such, so I don't know how um, the dynamic has been. But I would I would wonder whether having having a having very specifically a producer attached to this uh, album changes the changes the, the influence that Jesse had. Yeah, I mean we still hear his his bass parts um you know loud and clear and I think you know I get I've, I'm starting to get a sense of uh, Jesse's bass playing in terms of you know the way, the way he'll hit a second verse in in a kind of jagged way um or you know the bass part on of um put the radio on is is obviously you know really prominent yeah. um hook throughout the song. Yeah, definitely. Um You'd say the, I think the, the closest record this is uh, thematically in the, the key and canon, the lineage, it's probably Perfect Symmetry, mm. uh, musically. Um, 
But I mean, I keep going back to hopes and fears. Um, I think this is probably how Tim sees it. Whereas I think when Strangeland came out, a lot of people said, well, this is hopes and fears part two. You know, it's an effort to, to recreate that sound. Um, I never really got that personally. I mean, I um, I didn't really, you know, I I think it was it was a little bit lazy to see that it was a little bit less um, sonically uh, innovative compared to Perfect Symmetry and to think the band were regressing. Um, whereas I think with this album, I think the, the vibe and I think the feel, and I think when you listen to Tim and Tom, the way that they describe the album, I think this is as close to Hopes and Fears 2 as we will we will see. I mean, Tim's mentioned in some of the early press releases, he said Hopes and Fears was a breakup album too, so he, uh, I think the band have drawn that parallel as well. Yeah, and when I say Hopes and Fears 2, that, that can easily be dismissive. You know, the band have gone and gone for a safe option, um, tried to recreate the past glories. Absolutely not what is here on the record. Um, uh, I think they're, they're great companion pieces, definitely. So what would you say is your favourite song on the record? It's interesting. I mean, for, for me, um, You're Not Home is... Musically, it's, it's one of my favourite things the band have ever done. I think it, it combines some of the, the pr- uh, programming-heavy um, elements of Hopes and Fears that I loved, the sort of ambient material that they've not really gone back to, which is why I'm, I'm delighted to, to, to hear it. Um, I cringe a little bit at some of the lyrics, the phone, 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 phone bits, and th- I, I feel like that repetition is it can sometimes be a little bit of laziness. Um, that I would love, I would love to see how um, uh, Tim could write around those corners. I don't know. I challenge that a bit. I think the repetition is perhaps a, a deliberate thing. That you know, there, there's a lot of repetition in put the radio on in the vocal line, in the bass line. I'm not saying it's not deliberate. I mean, it's not as though Tom like accidentally uh, like skipping on the record. You know, <laughs> it's it's clearly deliberate. I would but just... as, a, as an effect, I think it, you know, is it deliberate that it's it's about things going round and yeah. round in your head? Is it that a certain feeling? I I. I I think you're right. That doesn't mean I like it anymore. <laughs> but but gen- genuinely, I think that 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 is as strong a an album opener as um, Atlantic was. That is um, a, a, a fantastic piece of music and a real statement about where this album is and where they are as a band. Um, and I love that song. But if if we're talking about like which of the songs do I think is the immediate big hit that people are going to be, you know, humming for, for years. I think Stupid Things is fantastic. I think it's a great song. How about you? Well, for me, I think um, I'm not leaving and Thread as a double whammy is, is, is really, really, really strong. Um, they are two quite different stru- songs, but work really, really well for me. Both on side B, I know as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm not leaving has that great kind of shuffle and it's it almost follows on a bit from Black Rain actually in 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 terms of some of the sort of moody atmosphere which which I like. I was the thinking falsetto. It, I was thinking it goes a little bit with um, Back in Time in terms of like yeah, the sonic okay. you know the sonic landscape. Yeah, I hear that. And then Thread is obviously you know uh, devastating. Is, yeah. is cinematic? Uh, I, I think is the word really and. Uh, yeah, that's going to be on TV shows. They're going to be earning some pennies from that, I think. Yeah. Well, we obviously have things that we love about the record. Um, what what, do you, what doesn't work for you? What, what's your least favourite? Your least favourite moments? Oh. Well, I'm not sure Put the Radio On has clicked for me just yet. I must, I must admit hearing it live changed that a little bit. Um, 
Chase the Night Away as well feels almost like a bit of a Mount Desolation song. It's not a million miles away from When the Night Calls. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Somehow, but which is a record I really liked, but I'm not sure how it sits here uh, on, uh, on Cause and Effect. Yeah, and I, I think um, we'll, we'll unpack this, I think, in um, a later later part of the show. Um, but the... I, I, it's fascinating to me as to what, what you know what, what songs make a Mount Desolation song versus a Keen song and how Tim compartmentalizes that. Um, for me, what, what, the, the weakest songs on the record. I mean, I um, I feel like Phases represent some of the weakest of Tim's songwriting, all rolled into one. It's it's plodding plodding melody. Um, it's quite basic musically. It's not. It doesn't have the striking ambition of some of the, the band's best work um, it has what I feel is quite a lazy rhyme scheme throughout but if it's adding something lyrical to the the overall album it doesn't need you know it's about the total being great in the sum of the parts isn't it which I think is, is incredibly true of this album um, you know more than any other album um, I, I see what I honestly I see what you're getting at that you need to have a track like that to you know, to sort of pace the album out, but um, I would have liked a better one. <laughs> I think it seems to be a fan favourite so far. I think I think a lot of Keen fans seem to like it at the live shows. Well, yeah, there's no counter to That's just like their opinion. Um, but no, I, I, I'm not saying you know everyone everyone should have their their own favourites, and I think we all like the same thing. I think it'd be pretty boring. But um, when I was listening to it, it did take me back to. Again, this is an interview that um, I can't remember where I read this. It was about working with working with David Coston and how um, he would stop. They would listen, listen back to uh, takes, and if he thought they were too sort of like old, keen, boring, staid, he would call them slippers. To me, phases is slippers. It is a fancy pair of moccasins, a delightful pair of slip-on brogues. Right. But it is, it is, uh, you know, it is, it is not thrilling and vital, and um, as you said, not everything has to be. But for me, it's, 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 it's a lull in the album. It's, it's a gap where something better could be. It's not a great way of, of kicking off side two. That being said, I think this is, uh, I think this is far beyond um, the heights that Strange Land reached for me. Yeah, I. I... I'm honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a bit surprised at how good this is. Like, the, the, as a record, it has absolutely no right to be as as good as it is. And I realise this is, you know, we're, we're probably going to be preaching to the converted here. There's, there seem to be very few people who really hate this record uh, amongst the fan base. And I think if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably the converted already. But um, we could quite easily have come back with a, a set of songs that didn't hang together with Mount Desolation. It could be something that Tom had, you know, had uh, agreed to do because, you know, he, you know, wanted to, you know, do a little reunion tour with Keen. The band get a bit, little bit of money, and you know, it's a bit of a, a heritage act kind of thing. And we, we could quite easily be here with a bunch of old songs that have been thrown together, um, so that the band had an excuse to go off and do a hundred dates and bank some cash. And that's absolutely fundamentally not what we've got here. We yeah. have a band that sounds vital. Um, absolutely, yeah. I, I don't know where you'd place it. I mean, yeah, it's interesting because when the when 
you know, when I first heard about the album, I, I wondered how it would fit in sort of the canon of, of King albums where you've got, you know, Hopes and Fears, Under the Iron Sea, and Strangeland as kind of the, the core classic Keen albums, and then you've got Perfect Symmetry and Night Train, which are perhaps perceived as oddities. This is kind of somewhere in, in between, I think, in that it's, it's perhaps an oddity in terms of being a bit of a concept album, and, you know, really goes down a rabbit hole <laughs> in that sense. But it, I do think it will be, I do hope it will stand the test of time and, 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 and be seen in, you know, alongside um, those, those other records. And we, we, we actually, we talked about this with Perfect Symmetry when we first started doing this podcast and how, how albums will be seen five or ten years later. I think, for example, I think Perfect Symmetry probably stands up much better ten years on or wherever we are, twelve years on now than it did at, at the time. I feel like it's, it's time's been very kind to it. Um, unfortunately, I think Strangeland time has been less kind to it. Um, it's. I actually think that this will this will stand up very well as being a, a classic um, breakup album. Um, I think there's there's some songs on here that will be that will live a lot longer than perhaps um, pretend that you're alone. <laughs> Yeah, not to not to like pick on specific songs, but for example, like thread will thread will be around for a long time. It's uh, yeah, I I'm I'm smitten, overjoyed. Let's say overjoyed that we we we've, we've got not just the band back, but I think at, at what is what is approaching the the sort of the peak of what we could expect from them at this point. We'll be right back after the following messages. It was meant to be the hiss of the summer. That's terrible, isn't it? It makes you sort of stop worrying about the quality of it. I mean, they look faintly ridiculous. It was meant to be the centrepiece of their album. Uh, I have listened to it for, for years and years. I think that's how we're going to go, in a massive diesel fueled fireball. Yeah, we're all over the place. How did it all go so wrong? The first record was a fantastically raw and exciting, powerful record. And then I think they became complacent. The second. And they had painted, shut up, keen. <laughs> and Coming soon, in ten one-hour parts, what really happened? I've done the guitar playing, but I've never done the drumming up. No, there's nobody, everyone's tone deaf. This year's biggest true crime mystery. I'm just looking at him for bloodstains or something, but you can't please all of the people all the time. Put it behind you, the true crime story. Coming soon to your favourite podcast platform. So, let's unpack some of the themes that are on this record. Um, Andrew? Yeah, so... I- I mean, it's fairly obvious what's the, the, the heart of the, the record. It's a breakup album. It's a um, the breakup of, of Tim's uh, marriage to, to his wife, Jane. Um, there's also um, uh, some real-life stories in there. Um, the story of his, his drink drive arrest in uh, 2014. Um, and really, I mean, that, that's all we have to go on. What, what I found really interesting around the way that this record's been promoted is that uh, Tom, Tom and Richard have been out there speaking about the, the album a lot, but 
Um, what's what's fascinating to me is that Tim Tim has been letting them speak for his work in kind of the way that Tim used to be out there doing promo that I would have expected Tom to be doing back for say mm. under the INC, which admittedly was written by Tim about Tom. It must be nice for Tom not to be promoting an album which is about his own failures for a change. <laughs> well, well, yeah. Um, I mean, a, a little bit harsh, but I mean, I think yeah, that's um, a novelty for him. Let's say. Um, what what I think we don't know. I mean, we we've obviously been allowed into sort of Tim's sort of life here in a way which is new and honestly daring and compelling at the same time. I think. Um, it's up until now we've had we've had a lot of sort of like um, everyman themes. We've had some sort of poking at your best friend. We have n- have not had anything which has been this emotionally raw. I think mm. from from him up until now, um, well, emotional and personal uh, at the same time. I think you know we've seen the emotion, but perhaps perhaps not the the direct connection to the to the songwriter. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. I I think. W- what fascinates me is the gaps. Um, what's, it's almost as interesting to me as to what we what we don't hear and the story, the the the, the rest of the story that isn't isn't within the songs. Um, and what we don't know is when when these songs are exactly from. I think from listening to all, some of the um, interviews that Tim and Tom have given, is that um, Tim basically brought these songs to Tom well, late 2017 when they had their their far side chat, now famous yeah. far side chat and. Um, he said he'd, he'd written this album, run out of steam a bit, didn't know quite what to do with it. And I think, just to put this into some context, so uh, the Mount Desolation album was um, released what, mid-2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was being recorded through 2016 and kind of stalled a bit. And um, again, just by, by chance, I, I, um, I actually ran into Tim at Glastonbury in 2016. All right. Um, just after they'd finished recording mm-hmm. Mount Desolation. Honestly, I mean, he... Um, you know when you see someone in a crowd, you're like, that guy looks just like, just like Tim. And you say to your friend, is that Tim? And no, it can't be. And then he starts doing his neck thing. <laughs> it was at uh, churches. Um, right. And you're like, yeah, absolutely, definitely Tim uh, does, does the neck thing. Um, but it was, it was funny. Um, the, I went up to him and sort of said hi and, and, and just asked him, like, how, how are things going? Like, um, are you still recording Mount Desolation? I remember just being sort of like quite grave and saying you know I, I don't know if we're going to finish the album like it's um, I don't know what's going on with it need to talk to Jesse um, are you are you here with Tom I don't know Tom's here somewhere I'm not going to see him I uh, don't know what he's up to um, and it's just it seems as though he was in a bit of a sort of a existential funk if that's as much as you can read into something where you talk right. to someone for 10 minutes in the rain but What's interesting, though, is that these, these songs would have come around around the time when that Mount Desolation album was being recorded. So it's clear that Tim had these songs. They weren't perhaps suitable for Mount Desolation. Um, he doesn't have a band anymore. Tom's off doing his solo stuff. So you can understand why he'd be in that kind of, that kind of funk. Mm, a writer without a voice, yeah. yeah. So, so do you think Tim held the songs back for Tom's voice specifically? Well, I think... It, it's possible that he had the songs but didn't quite know how to, to, to tell it. I mean, Tim's always been a little bit shy about using his own voice. I think the the, the story about the lead vocal on uh, Your Love is that Tim basically did the, the demo so well, he, Tom couldn't recreate it, and so they just decided to release the, the demo vocal. But um, it's it, it's quite possible that, you know, 
Tim has these has these fantastic songs, but with Mount Desolation being a 50-50 record, him and Jesse both bring material to the table. Having that record dominated by the story of one of their marriages breaking up, and then you've got Jesse bringing sort of like uh, you know country tinged songs of like whiskey drinking or you know whatever material Jesse had, the, 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 the two things would clash, and it would have been a, a waste of good material. I think Mount Desolation was always sort of a kind of fun side project to uh, certainly the first record was a kind of a novelty uh, and the second one which I really really loved uh, was uh, a bit of a deviation I guess from from Stand King Fair yeah. so yeah I, my, my suspicion and this is this is this is not based I, I guess on, on anything other than my own hunches is just that Tim has this material takes it to Tom and suddenly you know Tom is in the middle of, of writing songs that could be on his second album and now he has a reason to come back to, to, to Keen and, and sing this material and um, I think that I mean do you, how, how do you feel about the, the dynamic within the band in terms of the songwriting I mean Tim has always been the primary songwriter for Keen and I don't think they've ever said that it's that way specifically um, I think when Tom was uh, talking about his solo record, he's obviously had uh, a lot of songs in him and got songwriting ability in him, but for whatever reason felt he couldn't express that through or put, give those songs too keen. Um, the interesting thing about Tim's writing, I guess, today is that it has been... Uh, it's, it's personal in that it's about people's feelings and everyone's feelings, but it, it hasn't been specific to Tim's uh, own personal situations in a kind of singer-songwriter way and in some ways it makes me wonder you know this is kind of Tim's solo record isn't it this is Tim's if Tim was going to do a solo record this is what it would sound like I think yeah I think I think that's fair and I, I think that I mean there are a couple of notable exceptions uh, you look at something like Hamburg Song which could not be more first-person voice um, uh, very rich in terms of it being a it, it is Tim's voice coming out of Tom's mouth mm-hmm. in a way which has always been That's a little bit strange and actually on this topic I think we go back 12 years to um, uh, an interview that we did with we, we did a, a series of interviews um, with the band back in 2007 um, for, for a piece on the on the official website um, and we, we, we had a, a I think we, we, we posed the question to Tom specifically um, about his songs within Keen and he said, I, I have a desire for those songs to be heard and a desire to work on them. There may even be some of my songs on the next album, which at the time was Perfect Symmetry, and of course we know that his songs were not on that record. Um, yes, yeah, so then I asked him if it's more of a case of him wanting to write than wanting to do something separate to Keen. I think the the answer that he gave is quite telling, that he says it's one of those things where if you've got the ability to do it, you should do it, and that's been his, his stock answer to this. Uh, if you don't, you're missing out on a great way of expressing yourself. And I think putting those two answers together, it does make me feel as though Tom has, Tom has been trying to get songs into the Keen project, but it's been very difficult to see how it fits in with the way that Tim has run the band. And so in order for in order for this whole project to get back together, I feel like Tim has really had to go to the well and really bring back the, some of the best songs he's written, some of the most personal songs he's written. Mm. Um, and so the dynamic has now changed where... Um, in order for Keen to move forwards, Tim really has to have uh, an approach to songwriting that is interesting to Tom to bring him in. If if you follow, okay. yeah. Uh, I'm not saying Tom doesn't need Keen, but he's he's got a platform of his own now. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and I also f- I feel like Tim's songwriting is being influenced by Tom's. Um, 
That, again, just a personal feeling, but I feel that we probably would not see such a confessional approach from Tim if he wasn't also looking at the work that Tom was doing on the wave. Again, very deep, very personal uh, songwriting. Um, in w- Completely at odds, I think, with some of the, the songwriting perhaps on, on Strangeland, um, which mm. we can perhaps delve into a little bit later. But um, I feel like Tim's, Tim's uh, approach has changed because, um, again, those 2007 interviews we were talking about... Um, I, uh, I'll just read out the, the question I asked him then, which is, do you think that the risk is that you can end up being quite vague with your lyrics so as not to hurt people? Um, you're writing a song that's very close to home and you end up writing about very abstract themes instead. Um, Tim gives us his trademark long pause and he says, I think that's bollocks. I suppose you could say that about some of the first record. Uh, I mean, you could say somewhere only we know is vague, but if it was about a particular street, it wouldn't be the same song. There's nothing that I consider to be out of bounds at all in a song except if a song is about someone who has nothing to do with the band and I don't feel like they deserve to be dragged into the limelight. Um, I don't think that anyone could be expected to put this song is about so-and-so on the album sleeve, but beyond that, they're pretty direct, I think. And compare and contrast 2007 with 2019. It, it is a, a total change, isn't it? Um We'll, we'll talk a little bit about um, uh, one specific example of this on the record after, after the section, so we can go a little bit deeper on it. But um, I think the, um, the fact that this is, a, this is a new chapter, we've seen Tim evolving in that direction since that 2007 interview, where we've got Sovereign Light Cafe, it's a, a homage to, to home. Um, the rest of Strangeland, I think, is again a little bit more of that sort of opaque, thematic kind of lyrical songwriting. Um, but Cause and Effect is a new chapter he's got a story to tell even if it's a very sad one, a very painful one um, and the way that he tells that story is very specific, it's very brutal there are real world characters in there there's the officer in Strange Room he's right at the centre of these songs and this is the story of the consequence of his actions Cause and Effect that's the title I suppose <laughs> So that's why they call it that uh, Yeah. well I'll tell you what, let's, let's take a look at one of the, um, the key songs on the record now Song Spotlight So following on from The Way I Feel and Love Too Much, the third single from the album is going to be Stupid Things and should be on the radio near you soon. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's kind of a bit of a no-brainer for me. I think that is the, the sort of next most accessible pop song on the record. Uh, it's got that really kind of big, euphoric, happy sound to it, which is obviously, like all good pop songs, is completely odds <laughs> to the, the sad lyrics that are underneath. At the Brighton gig the other week, I really sort of felt there were parallels with Perfect Symmetry. I can't quite put my finger on it, but uh, yeah, that maybe there's something in it there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, f- for me, this was the obvious single, and I think the personally, I think the band have been quite poor at choosing singles in the past. I think there've been um, some songs where they've um, uh, perhaps missed an opportunity of a hit by by picking a different song. Um, but yeah, I'm absolutely 100% with you on, on stupid things. I think for me, it's one of the hookiest things that Tim's written. I think the the piano line is as good and infectious as anything that he has written. I think the what I'd advise people to do is to, to go and listen to the um, deluxe version of the record and listen to the Seafog uh, acoustic session uh, version of the song because it, it just basically starts with that piano line and... I would defy anyone who's not really particularly a fan of the band to hear that and not remember it, uh, you know, like that, um, uh, straight straight away. Okay. 
and uh, lyrically it's quite interesting too isn't it yeah so i i mean yeah i've i feel a little bit uneasy about this i think you this, this stems from the the apple music uh, descriptions of the of the track uh, you've, you've, yeah, you've I've got, got it that, there. I've got that here, yeah. So uh, Tim says it's quite unusual for a Keen. It's a storytelling song. Uh, he said, I love the idea of telling it, trying to imagine this basically normal everyman sort of character. I imagine him going for one harmless after work drink, then you meet someone and things spiral out of control. So, yeah, so if I hadn't read that, I would have a completely different reaction to the song. So when I think of a storytelling song where we're, we've got in mind an every you know an everyman character, I mean I'm thinking of like I don't know Tracy Jacks or something. You know, it's um, it's something which is which is clearly removed from the singer, from the songwriter, from the song. Mm-hmm. And what makes me feel a little bit uneasy about this is that we have been sold for me as the listener coming into this as someone who's not read this Apple Music description, someone who's not there into the interviews. I'm coming to this as this being a confessional uh, breakup album that's very personal and specific to the songwriter. And so when I come to Stupid Things and I'm hearing about this confessional chorus, I'm hearing about a verse where we, you know the, the, the singer is telling me about having money for the first time and thinking he's more than he is. And my first reaction to this when, when I heard this independently of that description, you know, it's it's my, my God, that's that's such a um, honest and brutal way of looking introspectively at your own situation, and mm. and you know being brave enough to to talk through the way that you've handled your your you know this situation. Being self-critical, yeah, exactly. And just in those few sentences, that edifice sort of comes down. Well, I don't know. I mean, my kind of view on it is, whilst there is certainly some you know whilst the foundation is is definitely in common with tim's situation i think what what he's perhaps saying there is that there's you know there are some embellishments so he may not literally have had a second phone or whatever but they're they're these are kind of literary tropes that you know are recognizable and so whilst it may have been coming from a common situation perhaps and i don't really i'm don't really care about Tim's personal situation mm. but perhaps it wasn't as glamorous as that and and the idea of perhaps dressing it up as something a bit more um a bit more kind of relatable because you hear that and you it doesn't take a genius to work out what the song's around and, and as we said you know it's kind of an accessible song so maybe the idea was take something you know which he could relate to and uh, exaggerate it for literary effect. I don't know. Build upon it. Sorry, is this sixth form poetry analysis? Or <laughs> no, I, 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 I don't want you to. Yeah, I don't want you to sort of come away from this thinking that God, I hate the song. It's you know, it's, um, it's more that it, it felt a little bit to me like the rug was pulled. You know, like, yeah, you know, I thought, I thought, I thought, I, I basically, I'd bought into this part of story, hmm. and then I realised that it was actually an embellishment. And, hmm. um, in that sense, I mean, you know, Tim could have left it completely ambiguous. And I think, you know, what he's telling us in that, that sort of description of the song is that thematically this fits, but it is, it's, it's, it's uh, adjacent to my story, not necessarily my story. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, musically, how do you respond to the, how did you respond to the song? Yeah, as I said, it's, uh, musically I found it quite accessible. So I think on some of the other songs on the album, they didn't hit me musically uh, straight away uh, and 
it took a few listens to to realize that this is very much a lyrical album i think cause and effect more than any other album that's where the the big changes are but but musically obviously it's uh it's a great pop song. Yeah, and just just one other thing actually before we're before we're done with with uh, with this song, um, uh, Owen Pallet um, is credited on this song as uh, programming and, and horns. Although I'll be honest, I don't really pick out any horn there. Um, I'm not sure I've got those yet, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. horns courtesy of. <laughs> um, but um, some people listening to this may not be familiar with, with Owen's work. Um, he's worked with. Um, uh, Arcade Fire, I think, is probably what he's best known for. He has his own uh, material under the name uh, Final Fantasy. Um, but he often does sort of crop up as someone who um, will provide arrangements, um, particularly horns and strings. Um, it's got some really kind of lovely sort of swirling effects throughout the song, which really kind of uh, crescendo nicely in, into it. And I think it, it has yeah. the impact of that when... I, I've gone on a bit about the piano line here, but it, the, the two things have this symbiotic relationship through the song, and then it really does have that punch when you um, when it comes back in towards the end of the song and um, yeah I just think it's beautifully put together um, and probably my favourite song from the album so that was today's Beyond the INC thank you so much to everyone who has written some nice things about us on thread um, and although we're not on Facebook a few people have passed them on to us and we are flattered and delighted to be remembered yeah what, what is thread so it's a, it's a Facebook thing um, I'm not on Facebook and unfortunately I think neither are you uh, we're not actually old enough to use it but maybe in a few years we'll uh, we'll get into it okay well if you want to send us more of the same or tell us how much you disagree with what we've said you can still find us on Twitter at beyond INC. Or email us at beyondtheinc at gmail.com. And for us, well, maybe we'll be back soon. I mean, it, it only took us a few years to pull this episode together, so if I were you, I'd set your watch for sometime around 2023. Until then, this was Beyond the INC.